You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Annual Vision Series. We've been doing this now 13 years in a row, following the existence of our church being 13 years old. And we do this Vision Series every week uh, for a couple main reasons. Number one, we have new people all the time that... uh, probably don't know kind of the, the, the things that we orbit around as a church. Um, and so it's good just to keep teaching these things for all the new people that we have all the time. And uh, secondly, just because we're forgetful people. We're forgetful people. That's the story of God's people from beginning to end uh, in the Bible is we're people that need reminders. We're people that need to be refreshed in these truths. And so we refresh ourselves on gospel and community and mission every single week at the end of our service, but especially in three dedicated sermons uh, at the beginning of the school year. And so today we're going to be focusing on the gospel. Uh, Sometimes we do Q&A. And I imagine a sermon like this could stir up some questions. If we have time, you can scan that QR code right now, save it to your um, whatever browser you use on your phone, and uh, just have that for when we offer Q&A. We'll do that today, and hopefully I can maybe address um, some important questions at the end. So today we're going to hear about the essence of the gospel. Um, It's always helpful to remember right off the bat that the word gospel means something. Literally, it means good news. Good news. So let's think about the word news for a second. All right? What does that mean to us, the word news? Well, this doesn't happen much today in our internet world where each one of us can have like perfectly curated news as we see fit in whatever form we see fit. But before the internet, news came mainly through the evening news or a newspaper, right? You watch the news, you read the news, evening news, newspaper. Well, what what are those things? What do they do? How do they function? Well, quite simply, they tell us what has happened, right? They don't predict the future. They report to us something that has happened. They declare to us something that's happened in the city, state, world. Like the war is over. Or there's a drought in the western part of the United States. Or crime is on the rise in this part of the country. Or the pandemic is uh, officially declared to be over. Like we all know what news is, how it functions. Hear this now. It's just a public declaration of something that has happened. A public declaration of something that has happened. And so we have to always remember this, how it connects to this word gospel that we have. If we don't, this word gospel just becomes kind of a useless catchphrase, void of meaning. That's what happens a lot in our culture with words that are overused. They just start to be like this junk drawer term 
of something that you, you just kind of impose your own meaning. And it's like gospel this, gospel this, gospel that, gospel that. Well, what does that even mean again? We never want to be that as a church. We never want to be that as Christians. So gospel means good news. What's good news? Good news is a public declaration of something that has happened. When we say gospel, that's what we mean. Something happened in history that's really, really good all about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Hear the news of what has happened. An event in history way more significant than anything you find on your news feed on your phone today or watching the evening news. So when we say we are a gospel-centered church, what we mean is that we're, we're a, a community of people that centers around this event of history, okay, that's been declared to us in the Bible. We're a group of people that centers around this event of history that has been declared to us as having happened in the scriptures. You with me? We're people all about good news. So that's just like basic kind of gospel 101. And now I want to show you and unfold it from the scriptures. If you have a Bible, open up to Philippians chapter 3. And it's, if you're new to your Bible, it's not a big deal at all. We're glad you're here. It's after First and Second Corinthians and then it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to allow God's word to teach us this morning about the gospel and then tease out some implications for us, okay? Let's look at what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 2. And just, just a warning, it's, it's going to be some things here that sound weird right off the bat, but we'll figure out how that works in a little bit. Philippians 3, starting in verse 2, Paul's writing to an ancient group of people in an ancient city called Philippi, and they're a new church plant. And he writes to them, and he says this, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own 
that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, let, let's start back at verse 2, and we're going to walk through this as we think about the gospel and its implications today. Verse 2 says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what in the world is this all about? What does this have to do with the sermon on the gospel? You might be wondering that. Well, let me try to explain and and have this come alive for you. First, we have to understand some Bible history, okay? Uh, Some Bible background. And in some ways, look at verse 3. This whole text this morning kind of orbits around this word circumcision, okay? And there's a big, huge Bible backstory that goes with this, okay? It just as a quick side note, if you understand this concept from this text this morning, it will make a lot of other stuff, in, especially in the New Testament, when the word circumcision comes up, it'll help it make sense, okay? So just keep that in mind and bookmark this in your mind. So in the Old Testament, here's the backstory. In the Old Testament, we learn that God, he created a people for himself. How did he do that? We started with this guy, Abraham, and Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and and God said to Abraham, through you, and I'm going to make a nation for myself. I'm going to make a people for myself through you, and that happened. God was true to his word, and they multiplied and had babies upon babies upon babies upon babies, and long backstory, but they moved to Egypt, and and many, many years after Abraham, they're, they're very, very numerous, and the leader in Egypt, after they moved to Egypt, gets really threatened because they're so n- numerous, and he enslaves them. He enslaves all of them, and it's horrible. 400 years. Well, God rescued them out of the hand of Pharaoh. He was their savior. He saved them. He did a mighty act, and he rescued them out of the hand of Pharaoh. And they knew that they had been saved by God and that they were God's people after that happened, Okay? That was their identity. We have been saved by God. This is who we are. We are God's people. The nation of Israel. That's what the book of Genesis and Exodus is all about. And one of the things he did after he saved them, many, many centuries before our text for today, is that he wanted to give them a permanent reminder that they were God's people. Okay? A sign, a reminder A physical sign, this is what he did. He gave a physical sign on the bodies of all the males in Egypt that would set them apart as different from the other nations. And he told them, he commanded them to circumcise all the male children. This would mark them as different from the surrounding nations. Now, that might strike you as weird from our cultural mindset. And God never explains why he he chose to do that. We could speculate probably... Not good to do that, but just to trust God, even if this seems weird to us culturally speaking. But he commanded them to have this mark of circumcision as one of many other things also that would set them apart as different 
and remind them we are God's people. We have been saved. We are saved by God. That's our identity. Chosen by God, saved by God, and ultimately to be a light to the nations. So here's the point. All around this word circumcision that you see in verse 3, God commanded this physical sign on the bodies of all the males serving to remind them of their identity. They have a secure identity. This is who they are. Circumcision reminded them of that. It's a really, really big deal in the mind of the Old Testament believer. So that's the history of this word and how it functioned in the world of the Old Testament. Now, jump back to our text. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we, ancient Christians in, in Philippi, and, and us today by implication, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. See, swirling around in, in, in Paul's day in this ancient Philippian church were false teachers. They were Jewish false teachers. And what they were saying was this. They were teaching Jewish people that were hearing this gospel that Paul was preaching and others as well, maybe not even Jewish, Gentiles, that in order to be part of God's people, to know that you're saved, to know that you're accepted, to know that you're chosen, to know that you're loved, all you had to do was just do the Jewish stuff. Get circumcised, do the outward acts, follow the rules, just be a good Jewish person from the outside, from appearances, and you're good. You're good. You don't need Jesus. You just need obedience to the law. That's all you need. That's how you know you're in the family of God. That's how you know that you're saved. That's how you know that your identity is secure. Just do the outward signs and you're good. No need to worry about the heart. No need to worry about your motivations. Just outward stuff. And so historically speaking, you could say that these false teachers were encouraging people to boast in their Jewish credentials, their Jewish resume. Like, just trust the Jewish resume. It would be like, for us in our modern context, it would be like me coming up here and like listing all of my advanced theological degrees. Now, I don't have, I have one advanced degree. It's not that advanced, okay? Um, But let's just pretend that like I had two PhDs. I don't. Uh, one in historical theology, one in exegetical theology. Fancy term just means Bible interpretation. And I came up and I said, you know what? I've gone to grad school for a decade, and because of that, I know a ton about the Bible. I know a ton about Christianity. I'm good. I'm saved. And I just encourage you all to do the same. Just check some, some boxes educationally. Go to the right school. Work hard, study hard, build up your knowledge about God, do the outward stuff. Then you know that you're good, that God is pleased with you, that he accepts you. That's kind of like what these ancient false teachers were doing in this church that had just been planted by Paul in Philippi. All you need is a good spiritual resume. 
Trust in that, you're good. You're saved. You're loved. And Paul is writing to them. Look at his language. He's pretty, he's pretty intense. He's saying, no, that's not how the gospel works. That's an anti-gospel. That's false teaching. If you believe that, you'll be condemned, in fact. And that's why Paul says, we, Christians, we are the circumcision. Translation, we are the people of God. We're the true people of God. Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was a mark of the people of God. He's saying, no, no, we're the people of God now. Not you guys that are trusting in your works, in your adherence to the law to save you. And he's saying, look at verse 3. He's saying, we put no confidence in the flesh. Translation, we put no confidence in acts of obedience. Like my human effort through my physical body to do certain outward things. That's what that means. We put no confidence in the flesh to merit salvation. We put our confidence in Christ who merited salvation for us as a gift. What he has done. So it's, it's, a, it's a massive reorientation of perspective. The ancient false teachers saying, focus on yourself and what you do. And Paul, Paul is saying, no, the gospel is focus on Christ and what he has done for you and simply receive it by faith. We'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself now. Out, uh, false teachers, outward signs, do it all, you're good. Climb the ladder of good deeds and you're good. Get circumcised, follow God's law, just be a good person, you're good. And Paul's saying, no, you're actually not the circumcision. You're not the people of God if you believe that. Say, we are, who believe a true gospel. Before we move on, though, I think it's good for us to jump to the 21st century and to our hearts this morning. Surrounding that phrase, put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying this is, this is a mark of Christianity. Christians are those who put no confidence in the flesh. And, and we might all sit here this morning and nod our head yes, yep. But apart from like putting some thought into that, we might miss it. What this means is Christians don't look to their accomplishments spiritually to make them right with God. Christians don't look to their abilities or gifts spiritually to know they're loved, chosen, accepted by God. Christians don't look to a list of good deeds they've accomplished to make them right with God. Christians know in our heads, right, we, we say yes to, it's all about Christ and what he did in history. When he died for sinners in their place, was raised from the dead to show that he conquered the penalty of sin, which is death. That's Christianity. That's the good news, right? Our confidence before God that he loves us, his wrath is removed from us, comes from nothing in us or anything we do. But it's good for us to ask. I nod my head yes on a Sunday morning, but do I actually believe that in the day-to-day? I would be willing to bet, and I would join you in this, if you agree with me, that we all have some type of a default setting that we lean on that makes us feel good about ourselves that has nothing to do with Jesus. 
something that we do put our confidence in that's kind of of the flesh, that's kind of of my effort. Something that we look to when we feel like a failure that doesn't make us feel like a failure. Something that, like when we feel worthless, that we trust in, and it kind of makes us feel worthy, at least for a short time. Something that boosts us and makes us happy when we feel unhappy. Something that tells us that we're truly a good person when we don't feel like a good person. What might that be for you? Like at your job, do you ride the roller coaster of emotions where if I have a good day and that presentation that I have to give goes well and it's like, yeah, I mean, like it's no, no surprise that God would love me. I killed that presentation, right? But if the presentation doesn't go well, it's just condemnation and I'm worthless, so I'm, trusting, I'm really trusting in my job, not Jesus. You identify that by how, how do your emotions go up and down based on your performance. If your emotions go up and down based on your performance, you know you're not trusting in Jesus. You're not trusting in Jesus' performance for you. You're trusting in your own performance for you. It's become a new functional savior. So maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your kids, a lot of parents in the room, new parents. My kids do well, I'm doing well. My kids aren't doing well, I'm not doing well. Maybe it's your physical health or lack thereof, your discipline to achieve physical health or your lack thereof. Maybe it's the Man, if I have the right friends, especially maybe some friends that have a higher status, then I'm really, I'm really kind of riding high if I have the right friends. If I don't have the right friends, I'm riding really low. Maybe it's the money you earn. Your emotions track with the size of your bank account. See, ask yourself right now, this is, a, this is a great diagnostic question. If I'm feeling really down about myself, what do I try and do to make myself feel better? Like, what's my knee-jerk reaction? I know that the right answer is, I'm going to turn away from idols and turn towards Jesus and what he says about me and my identity and the promises of God. But if I think about my default setting and my first reaction, that might tell us something, tells me, tells you about our functional saviors, about our idolatries. Like what do I put my, to use the language of the text, what am I putting my confidence in to make me feel better? Like, if I just had, no, I got Jesus. Yeah, that's good. I got Jesus. But, but in addition, if I just had X, Y, and Z, then I'd really be doing good. Then I could really feel good about myself and, and be a confident person. 
Like, what's on your spiritual resume that you're trying to bring to the Lord? What is that for you? What, what do you run to? I encourage everyone in this room to put some thought into that. And ultimately, how's that working out for you? I don't, I don't mean that in a condescending way, but, but truly, it's good to ask us, how is that working out for you? I know for me, like for most of my life, I think I learned at an early age that people that achieve things, people that set themselves apart through their abilities to do something unique, are loved and accepted. And I've always been somebody that I think where my default setting, if I'm really honest, is um, work hard, be exceptional at something, people will respect you, and that's probably been my default setting of like functional savior, um, things I trust in, watching my emotions go super high, super low, based on my performance in whatever I define as meaningful. And I could track that from like fifth grade till today. You know, I think I learned that watching kids on the playground. The kids that were really liked and loved were the ones that could, in, in, in my playground, were like the ones that were athletically superior. And I bookmarked that. And that connected to how I spent my time, sixth grade to twelfth grade. And my activities have changed over the years. I don't do athletic stuff in the same way anymore, ever. But the heart behind it is the same. Of like, there's this thing I'm trusting in, and if it goes well, man, I'm, I'm feeling great. And if it goes poorly, I'm feeling horrible. What does that tell me about what I'm trusting in? Look at how Paul handles this. We read about his spiritual resume, verses 4 through 6. See that? He just rattles off his, his Old Testament resume. Why, like, man, if there's anybody who's going to trust in their performance, it's me. I was killing it as a Jewish person. Pick up in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. My, re my spiritual resume was killing it. But, verse 7, here, here's what I want to close with. But whatever gain I had in terms of my spiritual resume, I count as loss. Like, it's worth nothing. Why? For, for the sake of Christ. So that he can be magnified. Not my resume. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, waste, in order that I may gain Christ. 
and be found in him. Here's the phrase, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from all the outward stuff, comes from my obedience. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, by implication, given to me, not earned by me, given to me by God through faith that depends on faith. See it there in verse 9? So Paul's rattled off his spiritual resume. I've done all the right Jewish stuff, verse 5, verse 6, look at it. In modern terms, it'd be like me saying, or you saying, I go to church every Sunday, I share my faith at work all the time, I'm super generous with my money, I was baptized, I oppose all the right things, I support all the right things, I've done all the stuff to show you I'm a Christian And Paul is, what he's doing here is saying it's worthless if I'm trusting in those things. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own, like that I earned all by myself, on my own, through all my effort and all my striving. Not having a great spiritual resume. Not having a great list of Christian accomplishments. Not being good little boys and girls who follow the rules to prove you are worthy. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not trying to follow all the laws and trusting my ability to do so to give me confidence before God. Paul's saying, never. No, that's not how this works. That's not how Christianity works. Don't listen to the false teachers. He says, if I'm trusting in those things to save me, it's garbage. Rubbish. Well, what is garbage? What is rubbish? It, it's, it's, it's things that we deem to be worthless, right? We put them in the garbage can. Get rid of them. Get them out of here. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to touch it. It's gross. Get it out of here, right? That's garbage. That's rubbish. It has no worth, so we throw it away. And Paul's saying that when it comes to his Old Testament resume. Because in his heart, he was trusting that to save him and not Jesus. Saying, there's no confidence in that. Don't have confidence in that. So what does real Christianity look like? What what does the good news tell me? That it's all about faith. See that in verse 9? Look at verse 9. But that which comes through faith in Christ, that which comes through faith in Christ. Look at verse 9. That which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now listen. This word faith gets kind of cloudy for us, I think, as Christians sometimes because we use it in different ways in the English language. But what the Bible means when it talks about faith, if you look at, like, the the true Greek word, it means more like how we think about the word trust in English, okay? 
Because in, in English, we, when we say faith, a lot of times what we mean is like, hey, man, you just got to have faith, bro. It's just kind of like this amorphous, nondescript thing of just like, kind of like, just be happy, be positive, have faith. It doesn't mean anything. But Christian faith is there's an object, Jesus, of my faith, that, uh, of my trust. So this has content. There's an object to my, do I trust this Jesus person? Do I have faith in Jesus and what he said and what he did? That's Christian faith. To be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, meaning righteousness by obedience, but that which comes through trusting in Jesus, what he said, what he did, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness comes through faith or trust in Christ. So, so what does that mean? It means this. Jesus said that anybody who comes to him, not trying to bring a spiritual resume of good deeds, like Jesus, here's all the stuff I've done. Now, now you'll, like, you'll accept me because of that, right? He's like, leave that aside. He's like, because if you don't, you get the glory. You're like, look at all this, the good stuff I did. Man, I'm awesome, and you should be obligated to save me. That robs God of his glory. See, the giver gets the glory. God is the giver, and he knows that what's good for us is for us to glorify him, to focus on him, and the way that that happens best is for him to be the giver, not for you to be the earner. You with me? He gets so much glory by being so gracious. So anyone who comes to him and says, Jesus, I'm going to leave my spiritual resume over here, and I'm just going to trust you that when you say that you died in my place and you rose again for me, and that's your spiritual resume, and all that that accomplished by being my substitute and bearing the wrath of God in my place, and you said it's finished and it's done and everything's been accomplished for me to be saved by you, that that's true? When I come to you and believe that, that you will save me? Yes or no? Do I trust that or not? If I say yes, then the promises that you've said in your word is that you'll save me. So then the only Christian question is, do I believe that? That's what Paul's talking about in verse 9 when he's talking about faith. Do I trust that? Remember the news that we talked about? There's a public declaration of something that happened in history, and the Christian message is just simply this. Jesus died in your place as your substitute to bear the wrath of God so that you didn't have to as a gift that you can't earn. And he rose from the dead to prove that it's all true. And if you put aside your spiritual resume and come to him, trusting that, turning from your sin, trusting that his, he paid for your sin, that it's done, done deal, free gift, that you'll be saved, that you are saved. 
That's the good news. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So you can stop the exhausting, so exhausting, God-diminishing attempts to find salvation through anything in this world that you can achieve. You can achieve work, relationships, money, status. All that stuff is just going to wear you out and rob God of his glory as the giver. And you just... Simply say to God, like in the parable Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that guy went home saved. All he said was, God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? God, I need help. Like we sang, Lord, I need you. That's a great, that's a great song. That's a great prayer. Real simple. Lord, I need you. What does that mean? I can't do it can't do it there's nothing in my hands i bring only to the cross do i cling i trust you see if you say that to god and come to him trusting him you can know for sure that you're a child of god chosen forgiven loved accepted this is the promise of god isn't that so much better than trying to earn your salvation through effort. Like Jesus died and rose again to free you from that. And so then what happens? That message, that grace, that mercy, it changes my heart. So now it's not I obey because I have to because I'm trying to earn something, trying to build up my spiritual resume. It's not I'm trying to obey because I have to. In light of the graciousness of God and that he's adopted me into his family, I obey because I want to. And I know that I have the ability to repent when I fail. So let that love change your heart today to one of changing, of trusting him in gratitude. Stand in awe today of the goodness and grace of our God and Jesus Maybe for the first time today, some of you know that this, is, this news is, you thought you were Christian and this news was something you thought you knew, but you, in fact, actually, you were believing some wrong news. Maybe today for the first time, you're, you're seeing the, the true Christian gospel and you know that you haven't believed that and you want to believe that today for the first time. Maybe that's you today. And if that is, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. Or maybe it's just the 10,000th time that you've heard this and it's good to be reminded. May we remind ourselves of these truths every day that we have breath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Would you help us? Would you help us? God, we need your help. Lord, we need you. You are our hope. You are our defense. Lord, help us to um, identify the idols that we trust in, turn from them, and turn towards you. May we be a church that does that together. In Jesus' name, amen.
We've got a few questions here. And looking at the time, I just preached too long. I'm sorry, you guys. But let me just give you a, um, I'm going to address these questions in a, a podcast or a video this week because they're good questions. I'll just read them, and I'm not going to answer them, and then you can look for, uh, look for the response this week uh, via Slack. Question one, so when you are someone who relies on medication to make you feel better, antidepressants for depression and anxiety, can that be seen as a weakness in one's faith in Jesus, or is it something that is okay when there is a medical need? Great question. That demands a really thoughtful response. Don't have time for that, but I'll do my best. Uh, second question, how do we share in Christ's sufferings? Verse 10. Well, that wasn't the text. Sorry. No, I will, we'll talk about that too. Um, we will definitely talk about, that's a great question, because it comes up in more places in the New Testament than just here. Uh, third question, in light of the gospel, do we have reason to pursue excellence as God calls us in our lives? If yes, how can we prevent excellence from becoming an idol? Great question. Uh, last question, before Christ, were performance-driven God followers at all justified in placing their confidence in their obedience to the law? Basically, that's asking, like, how did Old Testament Christians get saved? Great question. Or does the same principle fully apply where appropriate obedience should have been a hopeful and faith-filled obedience? Uh, yes. Um, but we'll un- unpack that. That's a great question. How do, how do Old Testament believers get saved? Um, and so, man, great questions. Thank you for submitting those. Look for um, an attempt at a response this week via Slack. We're going to turn now to the Lord's Supper. It's just a tangible reminder because we're forgetful people of the grace of God given to you, the life, death, and resurrection given to you in your place that you receive when, by trusting in it, in, not trusting in the elements, trusting in Jesus and what he did in history, and these elements remind us of that. 